Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Hey. Thanks, everyone. So I'm going to talk about today um, really one of my main research areas in the last five years. And um, so what I'm going to be doing is trying to weave together a dozen different studies into 25 minutes. So, um, so what this is going to be is a lot more like a movie trailer of my research rather than uh, all of the details, but hopefully uh, enough to, to pique some interest and I'm happy to go more in depth uh, with questions later on or uh, just you can come, come find me at the break. Um, but really this research agenda it kind of is related to this broader question of just what were the ACA's impacts on health insurance coverage, utilization of particular healthcare services, and then ultimately health outcomes and, and kind of what can we say about that. Um, so the quick overview is, you know, first is much bigger picture, what was the ACA's overarching strategy for expanding insurance coverage? And then why would we think that that would affect utilization in health in an economic framework with sort of economic decision making. Um, and then very briefly, what's the main idea behind the methods used to say something about causal effects of a particular policy um, rather than just you know, whatever else is going on? And thanks to, uh, thanks to Greg, I, I now don't have to go into nearly as much gory detail on, on that since, since much of what he said will apply as well. And then just quickly looking at uh, effects on coverage, utilization, health, just, just again kind of putting together some highlight results from my different studies, um, which are co-authored with a number of people. Um, and then some unintended consequences to sort of add on to the, the list that, uh, that, that Casey gave us earlier, so distinct from the things he talked about. Okay, so the strategy for expanding coverage, I mean, sort of the overarching idea is that the U.S. was unique in the developed world in not having some sort of universal healthcare, health insurance system, um, just as a sort of a statement of fact, not necessarily you know, an argument for, against, whatever. Um, and then the primary goal of the ACA was to move in that direction in, in uh, you know, to the extent uh, kind of possible without really ripping up. And while, so the metaphor I like to use here is kind of picture a leaky boat um, with a bunch of, you know, leaks in a bunch of different places and you could throw it out and get a new boat, but, but that would sort of be disruptive. So the idea behind the AC, rather than throwing out, you hear things about, you know, Medicare for all, think of that, uh, think of that as like throwing out the boat, right? Um, this is more, let's keep the parts of the boat intact that are sort of intact. They might be, you know, and then try to plug up all these different holes. And we'll see some of the kind of rabbit trail of, of, of uh, 
issues that that tends to create. Um, so the ACA was passed in 2010, most of its major provisions taking effect in 2014. So I'll continue, I'll get all the, uh, the, the dopey metaphors out of the way right at the beginning, but, but maybe those are the things you'll, you'll probably remember. But um, the metaphor that I can't take credit for that's sort of commonly used to describe the specific strategy is this three-legged stool. So picture a, uh, you know, a three-legged stool or four-legged chair, but, but there's only three parts. So. Um, and what's the idea is if you knock out one of the legs, do you have two-thirds of a stool? No, you have you know, a, a big mess. And, and that's the sort of, that's the idea of these, these pieces that are designed to sort of work together. Um, so that's not my metaphor. The, what is my metaphor that I, that I like a little bit better and that of course is somewhat more sarcastic um, is have you ever been to you know, county fairs and played the, the whack-a-mole game? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I, mean, I don't know if that's still around for those of you half my age. But, um, but, but this idea that, picture this game, you, you have your little paddle and, you, and you, one mole pops up, you hit that, but then that causes another little mole to pop out over here and you hit that and then another mole pops out over here and you hit that and, and you just have this endless. I, I think that works. And, and the first mole, if you will, that's popping up is you know, the, the very initial thing that the architects of the law are trying to kind of do is to find a way to provide coverage to those who were sort of excluded from the system before based on their health. Essentially, were too sick to get coverage or to get, quote, affordable coverage. So think people with pre-existing conditions and who didn't otherwise have coverage, say, through an employer, through Medicare, et cetera. Okay, so that's kind of, uh, I'll go, I'm gonna go through these details very quickly. Uh, the big themes very quickly, the details are up here if you're interested. But that's really the first starting place, the first, you know, whack the first mole, is how can we bring people with pre-existing conditions kind of into the tent, if you will. And you know, so, so the way to do that is, well, non-group insurers cannot deny or drop coverage based on your health history, and they cannot adjust pricing based on your health history either. So this is known as community rating. Um, now there were some provisions where you could adjust premiums based on age in a limited way, not, not enough to be actuarially you know, a full adjustment, but you could, you could modify on age a certain way, but not health status per se. So in other words, if two people are both 50, um, you'd have to charge them the same for the same coverage. Um, even if one is a three-time cancer survivor and one has sort of never been to a doctor. Right? Does that, does that make sense? So it's the idea of this modified community rating. Now, as that, you know, so this is where you stop and say, well, that's, that's wonderful. We've now included a whole bunch of people who really needed the help and we feel good about ourselves. But the problem, of course, anyone has taken a few economics classes is adverse selection. And adverse selection here is going to mean, and, and actually um, Casey's examples really illustrate this very well, is that, well, the 50-year-old who has not had any meaningful you know, history of health problems, all of a sudden you're making them pay the same as the person with the three-time cancer survivor. Well, the healthy person's premiums are going to go way, way up, um, as your example with that family. And so that family now, they're going to say, well, we don't, we don't want to pay, you know, we're going to opt out of the system rather than pay these, these inflated rates. And so that's this issue of adverse selection, which of course means then premiums keep rising and rising and you end up with a very small market of very sick people and very high premiums. Okay, so 
if you are trying to get people to buy, you know, so what's one solution to essentially the young and healthy voluntarily wanting to opt out and put solution maybe in bunny ears, if, if you will, but to young and healthy opting out, well, it's for, to make them not opt out, to prohibit them from opting out, right? So if the problem, if the quote problem, the thing that prevents these insurance markets from kind of reaching this new pooled equilibrium where everyone has the same premiums is people opting out, the, the healthy, the low cost people opting out, the individual mandate then was designed to keep them from opting out, okay? So then the next step, of course, is, well, if you're going to make a bunch of young and healthy people buy you know, what to them would be an overpriced product, well, if, if they're you know, maybe not going to buy it voluntarily, then you can bribe them to do so. Not unlike getting extra credit to come to one of these, I guess, right? But, um, but, uh, but you see the idea, though, is you know, leg one, you're jacking their premiums up to compensate for the people you're bringing into the pool. Leg two is you're, quote, prohibiting, it's really a soft, it's this tax penalty, right? Not, not you're going to jail. Um, you're keeping them in the markets through, to, in theory anyway, through sort of brute force. And then the third leg is providing subsidies so that it becomes incentive compatible for them to do it. And then you get into the issues that Casey talked about with incentives and Laffer curves and so on. But the idea is, you know, if something, if, if, you, if you were paying 250 as in the case of that family, now it costs 600. Well, if you provide a subsidy that's 350 or greater, and presumably they're getting a higher quality product, well, now, now they're going to opt in. Does that make sense? So that's the overarching idea. Now, of course, so you see the whack-a-mole, right? You're bringing pre-existing conditions, but that adverse selection, so leg two takes care of that. Leg three is, well, you know, now you've got a lot of angry, healthy people, and so you, so you, you bribe them, essentially, right? So what's the whack-a-mole? What's the mole that pops up after leg three? Of course, that's going to be cost. Um, rough estimate uh, in the order of about 120 billion a year, um, kind of providing the subsidies, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the CBO, so the law did do a bunch of stuff, as Casey was alluding to some of it, on the tax side and on Medicare payment reform, so that in terms of a balanced budget score, at least initially, that that was there. But the things on the cost side, I think, for the really most of them are sort of disconnected from the things on the coverage side. So I think it would be misleading to say that you're not spending any money here. It's just you're sort of taking from over here to spend over here. Um, so, you know, 120 billion roughly a year. Um, now, an interesting part about the subsidies is, again, in terms of the in terms of the leaky boat, in terms of trying to keep what was already there and just build on that. Well, we already had some coverage for some, not all, lower income individuals um, in the U.S. prior to the ACA, and that was the Medicaid program. So rather than just throwing out the Medicaid program and just doing all of this, this other stuff, what the law did is kind of rolled out these subsidies in two parts. So first was kind of round up Medicaid, if you will to 138% of the poverty line. So free health insurance, but public health insurance, government provided directly health insurance, out to 138. Then the idea being that from there on out to 400% of the poverty line would be these sliding scale subsidies to purchase private insurance. 
not government run insurance, but highly government regulated insurance um, in these marketplaces, these sort of the, the Obama, um, the, the healthcare.gov, if you've seen that, kind of the Amazon.com of, of health insurance, right? So that becomes important because through the Supreme Court decision, the Medicaid expansion piece actually um, was deemed um, not to be constitutional, or excuse me, the, the piece of mandating states to participate in that. So what went away is sort of forcing states to expand Medicaid out to 138. All right, now there were, the federal government was paying almost all of that, so most states still, even despite not having to, would still do it, but not all did. Initially about half did, and by now there's 14, Georgia being actually one of the more high-profile examples of a state that has not yet adopted the ACA's Medicaid expansion. So the upshot of this is this hole, where un people under the poverty line in states that did not, in these 14 states, there's actually no mechanism that they're covered via the ACA. Okay, so you have this very sort of strange, you know, result where the people you think maybe are most in need of the support, there, there are, there's a hole. And then middle income people, you now are eligible for these subsidies and the private plans. So that's gonna be important as we start talking about impact evaluation. Now, fortunately, I can skip right over this slide because Greg already did it. So there is this other piece that I think is really distinct from the three-legged stool and that took place at a different time. It took effect right away as opposed to four years later, which helps us as econometricians because it's easier to study things in isolation. And that's this young adult um, dependent coverage mandate. So what you really have are you've got the Medicaid piece, you've got the dependent coverage piece, and then you've got this private Amazon.com subsidized and regulated, but private insurance piece. So we think of that in our studies as kind of three different pieces, three different treatments, if you will. Okay, so just quickly on the theoretical connection. So that's the strategy for trying to increase coverage. Well, thinking like an economist, what would that change in coverage do in theory? Well, first thing is you would think providing insurance coverage, out-of-pocket costs go down, or prices go down, you're paying you know, a fraction on the dollar for, for medical care, so that means more healthcare utilization, and then in turn you would think that that translates to better health. So is it a very straightforward case that the ACA should end up, with, should end up leading us to better health? Um, kind of over and above the, the particular issues that, that, that Casey talked about in that, in that category. Just in general, it's really not as obvious that providing insurance coverage would end up getting us to better health as the simple logical chain might suggest. So it's not nearly as sort of obvious that that would happen. So a few things specifically, again, on top of the, the specifics Casey mentioned, some of them maybe overlap is in going, does insurance actually reduce the out-of-pocket price of medical care? Well, in the case of the private insurance, very often it would be very high deductibles. So you know, people would be on insurance, but it might be a $3,000 deductible. So that's really not affecting out-of-pocket prices within maybe the, the range that they would be doing most of their spending. So that's not as obvious. Um, co-payments is to share beyond that that you have to pay. And then on the Medicaid expansion side, there's this 
sort of question that even without insurance, you could sort of turn up at, at the emergency room. Um, and, and, you know, in a lot of cases sort of not get, not get billed for that if you're low income enough. So that share in that charity care, if charity care was a substitute, it's not as clear either there. Um, now on the, the next link of the chain, going from a lower out-of-pocket price to more healthcare utilization, well, are healthcare services actually price elastic? Um, they're sort of, in a lot of cases, more essential than, than maybe some other kind of services, tend to be a little bit less price sensitive, but most studies would suggest there's still some price sensitivity for most type of services. Um, on the Medicaid side, something that's interesting and ends up being important for our research, going from lower out-of-pocket prices to healthcare utilization is, that's just a monetary price. There's also what we refer to as economists as the time price, the time cost. And as it pertains to Medicare, uh, this is a whole different basket of time cost than, than was considered by Greg's work. Um, on the uh, thinking on, on that side, Medicaid specifically is notorious for paying very, very low rates to medical providers, doctors, hospitals, et cetera. Uh, think doctors in particular with, with their own offices and so on. So a lot of doctors don't accept Medicaid. So you might nominally get Medicaid, but getting a primary care provider or specialist to take it is another hurdle. Now, there are, there are going to be some who will, but, but that can be, you know, it's not quite as simple as just picking up the phone and calling the nearest primary care doctor, for instance. Now, the last link of the chain, does healthcare utilization always lead to better health? Not necessarily. There's this idea called flat of the curve spending. If, if you know about the, those of you who've taken a lot of economics, the production possibilities graph, um, you know, kind of where are you on the initial location of the production possibilities curve? If you're already consuming kind of the care you need and getting insurance just, you, you know, you, do, you, you go to the doctor for colds, this kind of thing, it's not entirely obvious that this would happen. So all this to say that it's really an empirical question that requires empirical, you know, data-oriented research to, to really get to the bottom of. So estimating impacts. Um, just want to very briefly, Greg had a slide that, that gave you the, the gory econometric mathematical equations that we tend to estimate, and, and then he promptly said ignore it. You know, so, so, so I think that's just to show you that we take this stuff seriously. Right? But, but that's the sort of thing that's sort of behind the scenes you know, in all these cases. Um, just to give you very basic intuition, though, on how as economists we try to get at, well, what's the causal effect of the Affordable Care Act versus other stuff that could have been happening at the same time, other laws, changes in economic conditions, et cetera. So what you really need, um, again, the prior presentation did a great example of this, is if you're just data before the ACA, data after the ACA, how do you know it was the ACA and not a whole pile of other stuff changing at the same time? So you need the treatment group and the control group. And the way in our research, again, across a number of studies, tries to think about you know, turning the ACA into distinct, measurable, quantifiable treatments is we think of it as three distinct treatments. One, the dependent coverage mandate. Two, the Medicaid expansion. So those are a little more straightforward. You have a natural treatment group, a natural control group. The trickier one is, is the third one here. It's the package of reforms that really just relates to the private marketplace coverage. 
Why is that tricky? Because that took effect nationally, not just in some states and not other states or for some age groups, not other age groups. So when you have a reform that turns on nationally, getting at causal effects is more challenging. So the concept we're leveraging in, in all of our research to try to say something about causality is, is a little more nuanced. It's this idea that, well, if there's a national treatment designed to increase insurance coverage, who would be, quote, treated or who is a candidate to get affected by that policy? It's someone who did not have insurance prior to the law. Right, if, 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 if I've been on employer-provided coverage all along, the ACA's coverage expansions you know, shouldn't affect me, so I become sort of a control group, if you will. Now, to, so that's the concept. The people who are uninsured at baseline are candidates to be treated. Now, operationalizing that in an econometric framework is, is sort of another matter, but, but that's the, the broad idea there. So, to some results, kind of, the, again, the, uh, the, the, the movie trailer version of our results, kind of the headliners. First thing is, well, what was the effect on insurance coverage? Just percentage of the population who had some form of health insurance. Again, not getting into the quality of the coverage, et cetera, or the premiums, you know, et cetera. So the dependent coverage mandate, our estimate, is right about six percentage points among the treated group of young adults. That's just 23 to 25-year-olds in our case. So that's not six, that's not six out of every 100 Americans, it's six out of every 100 23 to 25 year olds who did not have coverage before that as a result of the dependent coverage provision turning on now have coverage. So is that big, is that little? Well, the pre-ACA uninsured rate for that age strata of young adults was really, really high, 32, 32%. So six out of 32, you're talking roughly, roughly one in five, a little less than one in five. So certainly a tangible, the star means, by the way, that formally, statistically, we can reject that the true effect is zero. So it's a, it's a sort of real effect, if you will, not just noise. Um, so six out of 32, you know, meaningful, but certainly not solving the uninsured issue among, among young adults. The Medicaid expansion piece we estimate um, on average to be roughly coverage gain of about five percentage points. Now that's out of the whole non-elderly adult population. Um, and then the private, again in bunny years, that's this whole package of mandates and subsidies and health insurance exchanges, everything related to private coverage there. Um, about four percentage points. So five and four, if you add those together, um, that means in a state that expanded Medicaid and sort of got the full treatment from all of the ACA. So the five and the four is nine. So you, you basically nine percentage point improvement in, in the uninsured rate on a base of 20.3. So that's, you know, very rough ballpark, about half. So among young adults who did not have insurance prior to the 2014, um, expansions, give or take half, getting it as, as a result of the ACA, and that's really pretty consistent with uh, with the numbers that that you see from other sources. Um, and you know, super rough ballpark. We come out with that. You know, if you take the one the 120 billion a year, and then the number of people covered. 5,000 give or take, you know, per person, which uh, is pretty much about what insurance costs, um, for, for better or for worse. Um, so now trying to turn to utilization, here's where things, I've got five minutes, but where things get, 
you know, the effects on insurance pretty clear, pretty precisely estimated, but then going, well, did insurance lead to utilization? Did utilization lead to health? Here's where things get, you know, a little murkier. Um, so what do you want? It's a lot of numbers to digest quickly. Let's, so look for two things. Look for two things. Look for these are different measures of primary and preventive care utilization. So as Casey said, you know, we don't want to increase all kinds of utilization. We don't want more ER spending. These are sort of the types of utilization we might loosely think of as unambiguously good. More primary care, more preventive care. Um, and what we're seeing here is, you know, what we want to see are positives and stars. Okay, so to just very roughly to think of it that way, the first two rows, we don't see a whole lot of stars. We see a few here and there, but not a ton. Where we see positive all the way through and stars most of the way through are these non-group market reforms. So this is to say that to the extent we see gains in the, the clearest gains in these outcomes that we see are really um, tied to the expansion of private coverage in 2014, the, the subsidies, the, the exchanges, et cetera. And to, to me, it's kind of interesting because we know that there are high deductibles and high co-pays in, in that space. And so, you know, it wasn't obvious at all that you would see gains there. Um, but with Medicaid, we really see very, very little across these different studies. Um, effects on health, the, uh, and, and these important distinctions, uh, particular with what Sarah is going to present in the next session, we're looking at these survey-based kind of self-reported health measures, which are good in some ways. They capture a lot of things, you know, in, in principle, bad in other ways in that they could be subjective. So again, what we see there is we don't, we definitely don't see universal clear improvements across the board. The clearest case here is again for the 2014 private expansion piece, the third row. Everything's positive and there are stars in some cases. For Medicaid, even the one time we see a star is actually in the quote wrong direction. Okay. Um, and the young adults, you know, young adults don't tend to go to the doctor a ton, basically. So, what do we, to kind, of, to kind of pull that together, there would be a tendency here to say, ooh, private coverage better than Medicaid coverage, right? Because that, that's sort of what we've seen. I, I, don't, I think that the truth is probably more nuanced than that. The broader ACA literature is bigger than just our work. And I'd say it's frankly really pretty divided as far as some studies find that Medicaid improves health with some measures in some places at some times. Others don't as much. And I th so I think that points to this real nuance where different people are different and respond differently. Um, in some states, Medicaid might work better than others because there's not going to be as much difficulty finding doctors because maybe there, there's you know, better supply conditions on the supply end. There's not sort of a shortage to start with. So there's lots of room for nuance in here. And I'd also emphasize that when we're looking at health and healthcare utilization, in terms of consumer benefits, that's really just one side of it. Um, picture another person who, well, they're using the same health care they would have used anyway, but now they don't go bankrupt because, the, you know, they got cancer. Well, that person, in either case, they maybe would have gotten that treatment, so their health isn't going to change relative to if they didn't have insurance, but in one case they're bankrupt and another they're not. And there's, there's some pretty good evidence, you know, that Medicaid is going to helps financial outcomes of people who get it. Which of course is different than saying that 
right, that because there are some benefits to some people, that that means that 120 billion a year is a great use of those funds, right? I mean, the question as economists is much more the opportunity cost. It's are there, you know, what else could you have done with that 120 billion and what would that have done? And that's you know, the harder thing to wrestle with. So just to close with just two very, uh, you know, very quick, um, quick hitting unintended consequences that really is distinct from everything else I've just talked about and, and uh, some other research that co-authors and I have done. So one unintended consequence that I don't think gets as much attention you know, as it really should is if 24 million people get insurance you know, all at once, how are doctors going to see all of these people? And medical field is very well known for barriers to entry and, uh, you know, and, and that's quantity supplied can't adjust overnight. And you know, we've looked at that in kind of this unique, you know, this unique space of emergency of 911 calls and ambulance utilization and found that uh, as a result of the ACA, ambulance response, ambulances took 24% longer to get to places because they were being inundated with more calls. Then very last point, which is sort of just sort of hot off the presses type working paper research is an issue I think is starting to get more attention and should get more attention is verification. And are people who are enrolling really and truly income eligible? And there's some audit studies as well as some kind of preliminary descriptive type research that co-authors and I have done that really suggests that there's a non-trivial minority of new Medicaid enrollees who really sort of shouldn't be eligible based on income. Um, and it, maybe it's 10%, you know, it's not going to be a majority, but, but that adds up to a substantial amount of spending. And, you know, there's some really interesting, as an economist, incentive issues in there, where with Medicaid in particular, the federal government is paying 90 to 100, 90 cents on the dollar or more, up to 100% for the Medicaid expansion but states are left to enforce it. And if you're a, ra forget Republican, if you're a rational actor you know, in a state, would you not want to squeeze as many federal resources as you could and draw them toward your state to help, say, the financial situation of hospitals in the state, to help residents in your state? And so there's this, I would call it moral hazard, with this sort of mismatch between, um, between you know, the federal government footing the bill, but the states really largely being left to the enforcement. And that's something I think is interesting to think about moving forward. So that was a lot in 25 minutes, but, uh, but thanks for, uh, for listening. And Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.